Доброго вечора. Самі знаєте звідки. З моменту першого випуску на неймпадкасту в далекому 2016-му ми балували вас обговореннями, інтерв'ю з українськими фахівцями з інформаційної безпеки, а згодом і щотижневими апдейтами. Це відбувалось до 24 лютого 2022 року. Кожен день відтоді був край насичений подіями, зокрема і в кіберпросторі, однак про більшість з них ми зможемо говорити лише після перемоги. А тим часом ми розширюємо нашу серію інтерв'ю No Name Special у новому форматі, Залучаємо закордонних фахівців та транслюємо інтерв'ю наживо на Twitch. Ми ставимо собі за мету привернути увагу до війни в Україні та організувати збір коштів на підтримку обороноздатності. Хоча увесь світ вже вивчив вигук «Слава Україні», поки що не всі вільно володіють українською. Тому наші записи з закордонними гостями будуть англомовними. Ми завжди стверджували, що володіння англійською є невід'ємним атрибутом фахівця в сфері інформаційних технологій або того, хто хоче ним стати в майбутньому. Тому щиро сподіваємось, що це лише розширить нашу аудиторію та слугуватиме вам додатковою практикою. In this episode, we are talking with The Grug, security researcher, former exploit broker and renowned expert on cyber wars. Tadeusz Grug is also well informed on Russian hacker community in particular, which makes him a great fit for this discussion. In the interview, we touched on topics of Russian cyber activity before and during the war, answering some of the whys and discuss what Ukraine could do better to fight back. And with that, we bring you The Grug. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for coming here today for our special episode. Uh, welcome to No Name Podcast. Today we first go on air in English from undisclosed locations, uh, apparently, <laughs> which nevertheless will be obvious by our funny accents. Uh, for all those of you who don't know us at all, we are a regular Ukrainian cybersecurity show, but not so regular lately for obvious reasons. And uh, today we have uh, two hosts. It's uh, Alexey Starov, who our listeners surely know from previous episodes. Alexey brought it all up. It is his idea to uh, arrange this series of English episodes. And uh, without him, our radio silence would continue for a few more months, guaranteed. And of course, we already have here today Ruslan Kienchuk, who Thanks you. Th- thanks, thanks, man, for joining. Now we can call it uh, still no name podcast. Still holding on, still on air, uh, guys. Actually, I always wanted to ask you to. You were studying in Kharkiv roughly in the same time, right? Uh, I think so, right? Maybe. Yeah. Have you both, met both, those days? Both from Kharkiv, yeah. Right. No, we met. We met. I believe in first California. time in, in <laughs> Ki- no, Was it Kiev? I think. <laughs> I think Wasn't it a uh, no name con? uh maybe maybe yeah uh but i, I think, think we like met... we also met like at the besides actually in san francisco earlier oh yeah that's right that's right so okay so let's call you old friends so planet is a small uh... place <laughs> it is and i'm sure we will have a very vivid and productive uh, conversation today i hope that uh this is this is the beginning of a series of interviews with security gurus that will help us improve and empower ukrainian cyber defenses And uh, now to our guest for today, the Grok. Uh, Grok is one of the most well-known people in the cybersecurity industry, famous for quite a few roles, including the one of uh, a cyber warfare researcher. 
I will skip all, all the longer version of this introduction because there is not much to say. As a master of the sacred art of OPSEC, Grok maintains a public profile that is uh, the best advertisement for his special OPSEC course. Welcome, sir. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. So yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to discussing uh, Ukraine cyber with Ukraine cyber people. That should be... <laughs> Thank you, we're distributed across the planet so you know we made sure that we have high availability no matter what happens <laughs> um yeah so thanks a lot for the intro Vlad. Uh, and i think um we also want to mention that uh, the idea here is uh, both to discuss um situation in ukraine as much as we can but also uh to support ukraine and we have a few few links that we'll post in chat uh where exactly. you can uh, donate to some uh, pretty reliable sources it's uh fund uh, come back yeah. alive as well as our patreon and uh, where we can also redirect the funds to uh, yeah. either whatever I, I will send all the details in the chat and we'll post them after the show so you can donate during and after the episode goes live and also we will have it released as a podcast and maybe as a youtube video or whatever so wherever you find it just go to either comebackalive.in.ua slash donate where you can donate in many different various currencies available including uh, for cryptocurrencies so these money go to uh, humanitarian relief and helping this war to end as fast as possible comeback alive is arguably the most effective humanitarian fund in ukraine most right effective now. and also the biggest one yeah <laughs> most probably yeah these guys rule and uh, if you want to support us directly you can become our patron on patreon at patreon.com slash no name podcast our patrons keep this show alive and all the surplus goes to donations anyway and uh, you can of course and you must i uh, can say follow grok on his uh, blog gru.gq and uh, subscribe to his newsletter on substack so now i will go silent and enjoy my coffee and you gentlemen please yeah, with that, uh, with the with that <laughs> let's I will jump monitor in. Twitch chat and I will collect uh, questions from the audience. We will get back to them in the end. But uh, now we have something prepared by Alexi and Ruslan and, of course, our patrons. Uh, yep. With that, uh, let's jump in. So, uh, yeah, like Vlad mentioned, you have a lot of uh, blog posts um, on your blog about um, Russia and mostly kind of Russian operation in the cyberspace. Um, up until the war, I would say a lot of messages were, you know, that they are pretty successful and know what they're doing. They had a very uh, powerful in, uh, kind of informational influence campaigns throughout the years, both uh, elections in the US and I'm sure uh, many other places as well, maybe just not as um, kind of on the surface. But it seemed like recently their operation was not as effective or rather not as active at all especially outside uh, Ukraine. Uh, they did, obviously, they do a lot of uh, attacks in Ukraine, but, you know, we, we probably would expect a lot another colonial pipeline or anything like that, like um, attacks in Europe, especially after they help us, uh, US and so on. So do, do you also see that? Do you agree with that? Um, why do you think that is, if, if so? Yeah, so this is, there's a bunch of interesting questions in there that I'm sort of going to try and get to in um, <laughs> a multi-part answer. So 
Firstly, you know, historically, uh, Russia has had very, very good cyber. They've got um, good cyber people. They have effective organizations. They also have bad cyber, you know, like they're, they're not all amazing. They also have, uh, you know, outside of just the security forces, they've got the ransomware crews. But um, I think in, in the, the case of, you know, why aren't the ransomware crews involved in a Russian cyber war? It's worth uh, trying to understand how the Russians think of cyber warfare. Like, how how does cyber fit into their statecraft? How is it a thing that the state uses to achieve its uh, its ends, its mean? So, for Russia, cyber is a thing that is done by the GRU, uh, the SVR, and the FSB. Right? They they if you want a cyber, you go to the GRU and you say, you know, I, I need two kilos of cyber, and they do that. You know, you don't sort of post to a telegram uh, channel saying uh, everyone with spare cybers, please donate and, you know, go and like we do in Ukraine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. But you don't see that. Right. And you're not seeing um, the ransomware crews being sort of unleashed on Europe and being used to raise the coalition costs, which, you know, literally everyone is sitting here going like, when is that going to happen? You know, like. How, how come they haven't done I'm it? I'm asking yet? you why? Why? Asking you yeah, yeah, why. Like, what, are they, what are they waiting for? And um, the closest thing I can get to is that I think that they just haven't thought of it. Like they, they are so busy trying not to lose that cyber is sort of, it's, it's you know, not in the top 10 things they give a fuck about right now. Um, you know, why, why they are not including ransomware within the military operation makes a lot of sense, right? So, um, as we can see, they already have command and control difficulties. They, they have problems with getting orders from the center all the way down to the units in the field, information from the units in the field all the way back. Um, if you add another agency or something else to that, you're not going to make it easier, right? Like you can't add to the command chain and improve the situation. It's just going to make it more complex and difficult. So I suspect that the military is not interested in having um, civilians sort of seconded or given to them as a side thing to also deal with. Um, so I guess it's, it's sort of going to be like until someone writes a proposal and gets to Putin, who's then going to sign off and say, yes, get the ransomware people to do stuff. It's not going to happen. So that's kind of ransomware. I think it's when we're looking at uh, sort of Russian cyber in Ukraine, it's worth uh, breaking it up into uh, three phases. Um, So we've got the sort of pre-invasion, which I guess you could start and say like December and January around there, where you're starting to see like a a lot more uh, pressure and harassment and, you know, uh, wipers and defacements, uh, DDoS, a lot more collection of more, um, you know, lists of people of uh, tactically useful information, not necessarily just strategic, you know, uh, what is this ministry writing about and what are they going to do for policies? It's sort of give me a list of, you know, like they went after the auto insurance. Now, auto insurance is a weird thing to go after unless you're planning on occupying a country and you're worried about being able to track people on vehicles. Then you very much want to go after auto insurance because you're going to have uh, the vehicle, the registration number, the correct owner and their real address. You know, like that is important information if you want to control a population. So when they start collecting this stuff, it's a lot more um, sort of operational and tactical. They're really thinking about 
how they can use it uh, in an occupation. Then um, we have the invasion itself, which just the, the, the first three days when they had a plan, uh, they were executing on their plan. Um, the cyber that took place then was very effective, right? So they took out Viasat. Um, they basically shut down uh, Ukraine's air defense systems for you know a weekend, and um, they severely interfered with the ability of the uh, generals and the government to coordinate and speak to um, elements of the army sort of lower down, like it, it was cut off. And that was very effective, right? If Ukraine was closer to Russia and how they ran things, it would probably have been uh, decisive. I'm not sure, but it could have been decisive because the Russian way of doing things, which is very hierarchical and from the center, doesn't really allow for lower level units and commanders to take initiative. So when the Russians cut off you know, the top level command, what they were expecting was that there would be no direction at all. You know, the lower elements in the army would just be sitting around being like, well, there's tanks in front of me, but I haven't been told what to do. So, you know, I'll just sit here until I get an order. You know, and that's not what happened, of course, right? Um, you had, you know, the, the, you know the, the captains, the majors and the lieutenants, these guys lower down, they were able to seize the initiative and take control and react, even though they didn't have direct communication with headquarters. And um, that was, I think, uh, surprising, um, along all the other surprises that the Russians found in those first three days. But, the, you know, like the, the flexibility and the adaptability, I think, came as a real shock um, because the cyber attacks that they did were designed to attack a system like Russia has. And if you do it against Russia, it's very effective because then their army becomes useless waiting for orders they were expecting something similar to happen. So, you know, it was effective, you know, they were able to, uh, you know, like they, they took the airport, which they were able to do by flying in choppers, you know, right next to Kyiv. Like that is, uh, that demonstrates the amount of uh, control that they had in uh, knocking off the air defense systems. They were able to take down a lot of the stuff that would have prevented them from doing it by, taking that stuff out, they were, they were able to, you know, push their troops right up, almost in Kyiv. It was quite a close thing. There was like a territorial defense unit that was run by a lower level commander who took the initiative and had the, um, the runway bombed or uh, attacked it with artillery to make it useless. You know, like that decision uh, was very impactful early on and it's not the sort of thing that could happen with a Russian army. Like the Russian military wouldn't allow someone at that level to go like, okay, let's destroy a major piece of civilian infrastructure. You know, like that's, that's the sort of thing that you run up the flagpole and make sure that it's all the way, you know, it's approved all the way from the top because you do not want to be the guy responsible. And, um, you know, so we, we saw that the, the sort of, you know, we had this harassment phase, uh, this collection phase where they were sort of planning on a post-invasion. There's the um, cyber that was done strategically and um, within the context of their initial plan. And then when the plan stalled out, there was basically a, a week where nothing happened in cyber. They were just sort of, now what do you want us to do? You know, and I, there was this operational lull while Russia was sort of trying to figure out what they were supposed to do now when the thing that they were doing doesn't work, you know, what next? 
And so when we didn't see sort of big cyber actions, then it's worth keeping in mind that we didn't see big anything actions, you know, like it, cyber was not unique. There's just nothing was happening in terms of uh, major strategic stuff. And, you know, what cyber enablement operation is going to make sitting on the side of the road without gasoline uh, better? You know, like what exactly are you supposed to cyber at that point? It doesn't, it's not a, a, a tool that is useful at that point. So that sort of lull makes sense. And then they've come back to the sort of even level of just doing whatever it is they're doing. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right in that they've been less effective now. And they've also not done um, all of the things that people wanted, right? Like, why haven't they turned out the lights? Why did they not make the ATM spit out money? And why didn't they, you know, have everyone? Say, everyone's, everyone's perception was pretty much like, you know, if when Russia decides to go, it's like all lights out, uh, all systems blocked, uh, like full house, like everything right. hacked. But that didn't happen. Is it like also they're part of this information that kind of, you know, they created this picture, this kind of. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is sort of like, it's one of the big questions. Um, there's a lot of big questions about it. But one of them, uh, at least with the cyber war aspect is like, why doesn't it look like it was supposed to look? Like we, we know what is supposed to happen. You know, the lights go out, um, the ATMs start working, all the mobile phones go off. Uh, everyone's computer bursts into flame, you know, like that's what it's they, supposed to look they like. Never, they never told us that. We, we, <laughs> we imagined that. We, we fantasized around that ourselves. They never told okay. us so. Exactly. What, what, um, what basically happened was people look at capabilities, right? So you can turn off the lights. You could hack the ATM networks. You could hack the mobile phone networks. And then they think, well, if you can do that, they will do that. And, you know, that, that's not really how nation states work. Like states, generally when they're conducting military operations, don't do things just because they can do them. You know, like they have a plan and they're trying to do things that will make them achieve that plan. And so if we look at the, um, you know, like turning out the lights, would that have helped in any way with what they were trying to do? They, they had cut off communication. They'd already achieved that sort of the virtual decapitation, decapitation strike. That was a thing that they did. Um, since they expected to be sort of uh, welcomed as liberators, if they had turned out the lights, it, just, it would have pissed off the people that are supposed to like them, right? So it, it's not something that would help even psychologically, it would hinder psychologically. You know, if, if they interfered with the banks, well, they were expecting to take over the country. Like they wanted the money in the banks for themselves. You know, like they're not gonna spit all the money out and give it to everyone or like delete all the accounts and stuff like that. If you could do that, you know, you would need a reason for it. And it doesn't make sense for them if they're trying to win the people over to make everyday life really difficult. Um, so I, I think that's something to keep in mind is like they, they had this vision of how it was supposed to go and shutting things down didn't fit that vision. Um, it doesn't seem like they tried to win people in all the other aspects though. So I'm sure <laughs> yeah, they, they maybe been... it's just a problem of like coordination. Maybe they want one <laughs> thing, but the army does the, the, the other thing. I'm not sure, but yeah, definitely but, did not stop yeah, them. Yeah. 
that's that's because the plan was so short you know there were two versions of the plan for three hours and for three days and once three right. days passed so, uh, yeah. we, we cannot expect any level of coordination because as as the grog said yeah so there is no there is no plan anymore and uh, we need to shift the objectives but uh, all these type of cybery things they they need preparation Right, and you cannot shift it so dynamically as you wish. Right, you still have to wait for some time, develop a new plan, and then start synchronizing kinetic and the cybernetic activities. Yeah, absolutely. Did I get I, it clearly? So they just just don't have this level of cooperation between different branches of military. Yeah, and I, I think that's um, something else that's worth bringing up is that um, because this was sort of like the whole invasion was sort of sprung as a surprise on like the military and that you know um they had very very short notice they didn't have you know months of planning knowing that okay this is the go day you know you have to be ready for these things this is what we're trying to achieve like they didn't have months of planning they had you know days or weeks at most you have to assume that the gru was in the same category right they weren't getting advanced notice so they weren't able to do, um, you know, pre-staging and development for operations that they might have wanted to do. So let's say they did want to take out the, um, you know, the electrical grid. It could be that they didn't have access and they didn't have a functioning uh, tool at that time to do it. And they were looking at, you know, priority-wise, that's going to be like tier three. It doesn't make it. And anything that, you know, we have to do our tier one stuff, you know, via sat, uh, cutting off the air defense systems. Then, you know, we're going to do whatever our tier two stuff is. And then if we have time, then we'll get to tier three. And if they run out of time and they end up just doing, you know, the most important things, that's what they do. So it's also, um, it's also interesting to think about that the uh, initial targeting, that's sort of the day one wipers. A lot of that was sort of, you know, they whipped something up based on what they had on the kitchen, right? They didn't go out shopping specifically to make a dinner party. You know, like the husband shows up with like, uh, you know, all my friends are coming in, uh, you know, an hour. We need to have, you know, a dinner party ready. So they just rush into the kitchen and bang together whatever they can. So the targeting probably represents more of what they had access to than what they wanted to have access to. You know, so to a degree, it's worth thinking like, they did what they could do with what they had available. And that's commendable, you know, like they were able to make something work, good for them. But it's not, uh, I wouldn't take lessons it's from it's this. Strategy. It's not cyber war is. Sorry. What about like stage three, right? Uh, right now we see on the ground that they pretty much like destroying everything, like destroying cities, right? And, uh, you know, I do expect they, such a destructive strategy is something they can choose, right? And probably they choose enough. Um, are they, do they have like obstacles with this? Uh, so we already have like this um, case when uh, there was correlation between missile attack on Odessa and uh, uh, pretty much also like, you know, uh, different kind of pro-Russian activist groups also positive maybe need to attack Odessa. Uh, do we expect to see more such events and basically just destroying the dosin, the wiperin and everything like that? Yeah. So um, I don't necessarily want to get into it because uh, one of the things I have is I don't give advice to people I disagree with. So I think that there are um, attacks that they could do that would be very interesting and would be very damaging. 
hopefully they don't think of these themselves or that they're not practical, whatever. But, you know, the, the Odessa thing, I think um, it's interesting, but just, just in the fact that it happened, not necessarily in the effects that it achieved. I don't think that uh, calling on volunteers to do things is a good idea for, um, for cyber because a lot of the time what you want is uh, things that are within your sort of command hierarchy that can sort of help you achieve the strategy that you're trying to execute. You don't want like, uh, like if you're playing a football game, you don't want like the crowd to just run onto the pitch. Like that doesn't help you. That's gonna cause a problem. You won't be able to, you know, win the football match because all of the, these people show up. It's not going to make it easier for you. I think it's similar in cyber. And so um, if they are trying to turn to these uh, patriotic hackers, you know, good for them, do more of that, you know, absolutely go for it because that stuff is, um, I've said it, like it, it's worse than useless. Like it, it, will, it will hinder actual operations. So I, I wrote about this. Uh, there was a guy who responded in a tweet. He was like, yeah, you know, uh, when I was working for the government, we definitely had cases where like civilians would do some hacking shit and it would interfere with one of our government operations. And that's, I think that's sort of like the best case scenario for these guys is that they get something that's interesting enough that the government was there first. But mostly they're just, you know, um, a waste of bandwidth. Yeah, we actually discussed this with Vlad uh, the other day and uh, I mentioned, well, like, at least it creates some noise, but Vlad responded like, yeah, but it also creates noise for us. So it's <laughs> not very helpful. Yeah, but uh, yeah. so we discussed kind of, um, you know, Russian aspects of uh, of what they do. Um, also the the blind spot, what you call them about like the... Um... Uh, the ransomware? Yeah, um... yeah, the ransomware, exactly. Um, and so I, I guess... One thing that I would want to to wrap up on this topic is like previously everyone would believe that you know every kind of superpower would have implants everywhere. Well, maybe not everywhere, but in a lot of sensitive places, uh, right? And uh, everywhere. Am, okay, everywhere. Among, the perception, at least yeah, with and the people power was that superpowers have implants everywhere. Among <laughs> all the situations, you would think that this is the one where they would. Uh, pull plug at least on some of them so you know mm -hmm. are we kind of just playing the uh, uh the game of you know we're just too excited about our, our cybersecurity team that's not actually a thing or they decided not to pull the plug um you know I, again this is one of like the big questions uh so from uh speaking with people uh, like not to sugarcoat it but um they pointed out that Ukraine's resilience is due much more to the ability of the Ukrainian people to switch over to other systems than it is due to Ukrainian defenders. That basically, um, which, you know, to be fair, like no defenders have a particularly good uh, track record against nation states. Like when a state decides that they're gonna hack something, generally speaking, you know, applying patches and making sure that, you know, you're uh, up to date, like, that's not necessarily uh, sufficient. So, yeah, like when they want to do things, they're able to do it. Um, I think the the fact that they haven't is perplexing. You know, initially during that invasion phase, it makes sense. You know, they don't want to piss people off because they expect to be welcomed. They don't need to uh, turn out the lights or turn off the phone networks because they're using the phone networks and they need the electricity themselves. You know, like it makes sense. But now I think 
they might have gotten the hint that they're not welcome. You know, if they haven't by now, then I don't think they're ever going to get it. But yeah, but abroad, for example, right? US, Europe, um, to kind of distract those countries from, you know, helping Ukraine focus and like focus on their problems created inside, it, you would think that, as well. That's what I wanted to ask, because uh, we always presumed that uh, cyber operations in Ukraine executed by Russia were always this kind of uh, political signaling, right? So they used Ukrainian infrastructure as a medium to show the world what they can do. Look, we can do it to them. So we most probably will be successful in doing it to you too. So not doing it to Ukraine now, isn't it a bad signaling in this situation? That is, that is an interesting observation. Not just um, not doing it to Ukraine, but not doing it to, to Europe. Like, why wouldn't they, you know, create some chaos not, in not Europe? Doing so it they... Basically to, to anyone. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, it, it could be that, um, you know, as we've said, like, you do need to do preparation. You can't just deploy, you, 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 like, uh, cyber is not a missile. You can't just push a button and immediately have an effect. You, If you have a new yeah. operational plan, you have to do you know, development, R&D, you have to do mm -hmm. reconnaissance, you have to, you know, gain access, install things. You know, there's a lot that you need to do that takes time. So it could be that, um, you know, their, their resources are stretched right now just doing, you mm -hmm. know, basically whatever they're doing right now. They, they, do. don't have, yeah. they don't have capacity to go out and, you know, do all the recon, do all the development, do all that stuff from scratch. No, I'm, I'm not sure that's so, true. That's one option. But it's the most plausible explanation so far, right? So they just were not ready. Yeah. And so, um, so uh, yeah. Go ahead. what about like the dimension of information operations, right? So I understand like the zero days needs, you know, more preparation, ransomware, cyber, uh, like in depth cyber, like that. Uh, but about information wars, they, they are active. Um, you know, all this disinformation news, like fake news, fake accounts, also like in broader scope, not only in, inside Ukraine, but in uh, other, you know, European and US uh, and other Western countries. But also still, I do not think that they're still effective, or, or that much effective, at least like what the inside propaganda over the past eight years and more. Um, so do you think it's the same reasons or it's kind of different? Um, yeah, so I, I think um, part, of, part of the problem that they had with information war, um, you know, so one thing was that, uh, you know, in 2016, when they did their big thing in the US and Brexit and so on, they basically showed their hand, right? So they showed um, the West, these are the, these are the techniques that we use, this is how we do our thing. And uh, the, you know, like Facebook and Twitter and so on, they have taken steps to mitigate that. So it's less effective than it used to be. Uh, also, the general public is more aware of it, and it's, you know, slightly less effective against them. You know, uh, in 2015, no one was saying, you know, Russian bot, Russian bot. Now there's a very, very high chance that if you, you know, make a pro-Russian statement, you're going to be accused of being a bot because it's in the cultural understanding that, you know, Russia does this thing. So... Um, I think, you know, on the one hand, that is less effective. I think uh, it's, it's worth considering that, you know, you do have to plan information operations to an extent. Um, if you're just trying to cause problems, you could sit around and monitor the traffic inside a country. And when like a little scandal happens, you can seize it and amplify it and cause problems. But if you want them to 
think a particular way, you have to prepare for that. You can't just like you need to do messaging. It's it's a marketing campaign, right? You have to plan. You have to have meetings where you discuss, you know, like what is the themes that are we going for? Like what's going to resonate? What are the you know broad uh, brushstroke outlines that we want people to take away? You can't just wing it. And um, they clearly didn't do that because, you know, as we've said, their plan didn't involve a long war where they were losing. You know, that's not how it was supposed to go. So they didn't do any preparation for, you know, how to make it look like they're on the right and they're doing the correct thing. The, the whole point was to get it over so quickly that no one could respond. And then, you know, they wouldn't need to do complex information stuff that have all the time in the world at that point. When that failed, you know, again, we saw that sort of lull where there was just nothing was happening. Like Russia, basically, like they brain froze. They're just like, oh, right. So there's that. I think there's a few other things to consider as well. One of them is that um, the people on the sort of like the front lines in the trenches of the information war, they're younger people. And younger people are more against the war than the older generation. So if you have a job working as an information warfare person because you just need the money and you speak English and that's like you know, a really easy thing, you just have to sit on Twitter. One of the ways that you could show your support for the war is by not being very good at your job, right? So you could do what you're told to do, but you won't do a good job. Like you won't try particularly hard. Um, Almost like a sabotage. Yes. But so it, that's 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 what what I'm thinking on the background for a few <laughs> days now. This stuff is very easy to do bad. <laughs> yeah, and so um, say you know, you know, they, they are so so hard to target. Target. I just cannot break in. So, come on, yeah. your zero day is not yeah, working. Like you know, yeah. Here's all the things on Metasploit that I tried and it didn't work. So you know, I'm out of options. You can yeah, show it logs. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you can demonstrate that you tried without trying. You know? um, so uh, in, in like um, labor relations and unionizing, we would call that like a work to rule strike. But basically you follow every regulation and rule and you know how you're supposed to do your job. You do absolutely everything to the letter and nowhere can function like that. Yeah, like every like it's a strike. Like you're literally like you know, um, if normally you're supposed to stamp something three times, you'll stamp it once, and then you put everything away, and you know you wait for after lunch, and then you do your second stamp, and on the way home you can do your third stamp, and then you know that way you've followed the letter of the law, and it's caused problems, but no one can sort of fault you for doing the wrong thing because what you've done is exactly what you're supposed to do. So. That's one option. Um, one other thing to consider is that the ruble has crashed and a lot of their external uh, information operations were um, based on hiring external companies, right? So they got cut off from SWIFT, so they weren't necessarily able to send money and their money, you know, halved in value. If you're, you know, if you're hiring people somewhere else and getting them to do your job, and then your money collapses and you can't send them money, they're not gonna do, they're not gonna do it anymore, right? Like they're, they're gonna stop. So I you think can, they can lost. ask them to pay you in trouble, but yeah, <laughs> it doesn't work really well yeah. in many cases. Well, it works with two countries, but yeah. yeah well, maybe, maybe they could offer, you know, like some tanks that they aren't using or whatever. You know? 
Um, but yeah, like they, uh, they lost the ability to sort of get external people, um, not completely, but to a huge degree. The people that they're relying on are not necessarily um, ideologically motivated and committed. And um, they're also, I, I think a lot of the people involved right now, so like there's this dynamic that shows up in uh, dictatorships. If you're running a dictatorship and you, um, you know, you're the dictator, the things that you worry about are the army and the intelligence services getting rid of you. And so there are ways to minimize that. Uh, one of the ways is to make sure that the people who are in charge of everything are loyal and you choose loyalty over competence. You know, you choose people who will agree with you and will do what you want to, you know, like you get people who do things that are good for you rather than people who are good at doing their jobs. And if that goes on long enough, it sort of, it trickles all the way down because that's how it's supposed to work. So one of the um, reasons that's been put forward of why the army has performed so poorly is that it's followed this sort of uh, process. I would think that the intelligence services have probably had the same sort of issue where, um, you know, like the FSB did incredibly poorly in Ukraine. Like somehow they came away with, you know, like they've never been very good at analysis, but they completely fucked that up so badly. And, you know, they, they were just corrupt as hell and all the stuff that they were sort of allowed to do because that's how you keep them on board. Right? Like you, if you're bribing your security services to like you, you promote loyal people and you turn a blind eye to um, corruption, which will allow these people to make extra money. Um, you know, either you allow them to be corrupt or you pay them money yourself. You know, you sort of buy their loyalty. Um, allowing corruption is one way of not spending your own money on it. So that sort of thing tends to be good in terms of maintaining power and then bad in terms of having a working apparatus that you can actually turn to. And so I'm to a degree, I'm wondering, you know, how, how much of their failure in uh, some of these areas reflects just systemic problems that have, you know, rotted into uh, the organizations that they have. And yeah, like the, the information warfare, I think it's worth remembering that one of the other things is you've got this like 68 year old man, like a, a KGB pensioner, and he's running an information war against a um, comedian who used to be on TV and has a, like a really good oh, no, understanding no. of media, you know, like. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the main, main misconception here is that uh, the information war most probably is run by a professional uh, social media management and uh, CEO optimization stuff guy who is currently our vice premier and the minister <laughs> of digitalization so the, these people must know how to do it right right i mean if, if yeah if, you, if you're going to be going to war with um like if you're going to have an information war it's not a bad idea to have like a uh, what is it the military ministry of digital transformation exactly you know? yeah. that's that's a pretty good idea <laughs> you know yeah i you know they have it too but it's mostly silent yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly the direction I wanted to steer it in, right? And we kind of naturally arrived to to Ukrainian Minister of Digital Transformation. But I guess after we talked about uh, you know Russia, um, obviously we'll uh, save uh, discussions about you know what Ukraine uh, did, how they did it, uh, what was wrong for after the win. But for now, 
what would like what Ukraine should do uh, if you would be in charge, if you would be the minister of digital transformation, like <laughs> what would you do to uh, coordinate response uh, the most effectively in your opinion? Yeah, so um, I think there's there are campaigns. One, one moment, one moment, please. So you are you are going to give us an advice. Does this mean that you like? This is us? different. Yeah, that, um, <laughs> yeah. Like giving advice to people, I agree with is is fine. It's the um, you know, like I've I've done stuff where I've written about uh, criminals and um, like child predators and all this stuff. Like learning from them because they make mistakes is good. Telling them how to correct the mistakes is what I don't Not do. Not so good. Right? So that's sort of, I'm, I'm taking the same approach here. Like I'm, I'm willing to learn from Russia, but I'm not willing to correct them when they're making mistakes. Uh, Ukraine is different, you know? Um, so I think um, there, there's a lot of, um, there's sort of two, two things that need to be done in the information world. One is there's the attempt to reach the Russian people and either get them on side, get them to stop supporting the war, um, you know, turn them against Putin, that sort of thing, like trying to reach people in Russia. And the other one is keeping the West uh, on side, so, you know, making sure mm -hmm. that Ukraine doesn't fall to like page 15, you know, with, you know, two column inches saying, you know, stuff happened. You need to sort of keep in people's minds so that they're going to keep saying, all right, you know, like, what can we do to help? So in, These in are two, two conflicting things because Russians are slowly but surely are getting there, and uh, the only way to make them get there is to make this continue for as long as possible, and that's not uh, <laughs> what would be easy, you know, in the West mm -hmm. to, to lure their attention to this for for that long, you know. Right. So yeah, like the. Um the more casualties that the Russians experience in more places, the more Russians will realize, you know, like war is not a good thing. Like war has, you know, actual, exactly, yeah. you know, obviously the longer it runs, there will be more casualties. The more people will turn against it sort of um, as, as has happened with like Chechnya, with Afghanistan, like, you end up with mothers driving to the border to pick up their sons and you know take them out of the military that you know it'll happen in the future years down the line that is not a useful time frame you know like yeah running sure, running a war for ukrainians will die too it's, exactly it's not a very yeah. optimal strategy no it's um it deciding let, let's go for the long haul and just uh, you know attrition until there's no one left you know, that, that's that's not a sort of strategy that you want to come forward with and being like, you know, I, I've got this thing licked. I figured it out. I know exactly how we're going to win. You know, 10 years of bloody war. Like, <laughs> no. That, that, so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, yes, that causes problems. There are ways around that. And I think um, one of the problems that Ukraine has had is the, the attempts to reach the Russian people have been um, Ukraine-led. You know, why are you doing this to us? We're people just like you. Uh, that's not useful if they don't think that you're people like them, right? If, if you're trying to say, you know, we are different from you, why are you doing this to us? You've already answered the question, you know, because we're different. Hmm. What you should be doing is using um, Russians to convince Russians that war is bad. And where do you have perfect versions of that? Well, the people on the front lines who are getting shot 
and are you know losing a hand and screaming into the radio or are calling for a medevac to come and pick up their 20 friends who have all been killed you know all of this stuff gets broadcast over radio it gets captured it gets analyzed for intelligence use but i think that there's a huge psychological impact as well right so if i am a russian citizen and i hear a ukrainian ask why are you doing this to us i can come up with reasons if i'm a russian citizen and i hear russian boys screaming in pain and terror that's different right i start realizing this is bad on both sides so i think that there's a campaign that could be run by sending um you know like the russian experience of war particularly the the actual experience not the uh, not the one from interviews like when it's interviews they don't include all the stuff where they're swearing and cursing and you know terrified that doesn't get you know picked up what you want to do is like yeah. just raw real visceral experience Got Currently, SBU is regularly uh, posting this kind of intercepts. Uh, of course, framed the correct way and uh, yeah. put into Telegram, easy for sharing, but they just have to make it more dramatic, right? And uh, focus more yeah. on covering Russian audience. Yes. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, gonna... I, yeah, like the, the way I would think to, to position it would be things like, you know, Uh, here is, you know, Oleg, blah, 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 from the 3rd Armored Division trying to reach his captain who has abandoned him in the field and, you know, take away Oleg. And then mm-hmm. you transition and you could say, like, you know, when you come back, you're like, and so that was Oleg with his experience in the field after his captain abandoned him, <laughs> you know, and his 10 friends are dead. So, you know, yeah, following yeah. that, we're going to now have, you know, someone else in the field who's going to be, you know, talking about bringing in a medical evac because, his friend has had his legs blown off. You know, you, you basically make him uh, sort of understand that this is happening to your side. This is what your boys are going through. You know, like your brothers, your uh, uncles, your fathers, this is what's happening to them and it sucks and you don't want people to go through that. So I, I think that would resonate. So that would be a suggestion, throwing that out there. Yeah, you need to make sure the right people yeah. hear this. <laughs> right. Oh, I will. I think there are ways that you can make it um, very, very uh, widely available. Um, it might be, you know, um, I don't know. I, I'm just thinking that, you know, like how the memes, like there, there are certain... Uh, it, it, it's, it's not easy in yeah. the country where TikTok is blocked, you know, because this stuff was right. <laughs> invented for this kind of operations. Wait, are you talking about US or Russia? <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> TikTok is blocked in US? Well, it not was, yet. right? How? It, almost, yeah. It, it's Chinese, yeah. you know? <laughs> Yeah, so this is a question I had, right, in terms of like delivery of this information, like anything we can do better, right, because there is like kind of contradictory movements, right, about disconnecting Russia, right, and isolating it, at the same time we do want to deliver this information, right, uh, anti-propaganda information, um, anything, you know, like what is the best strategy, like you, you think here? Um, so this I'm not really sure about, uh, I, I don't know what is available and what people use, you know, um, I think there are things that would be um, that sound, you know, on the surface, they sound like good ideas. And I, I think they would not work very well. So, you know, like if you defaced uh, Yandex and you were to put up, you know, 
pictures of whatever, that would be like, that sounds like a good idea that's going to reach a lot of people, but I don't think it actually would. I think uh, it would be restored fairly quickly and it would be turned into a, um, a sort of propaganda point for the other side. They'd be able to say like, you know, they're trying to attack our civilian infrastructure. They're going after, you know, posting fake information, trying to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like it, it, it won't reach enough people to counteract the ammunition it would provide. So I think um, it needs to be sort of organic in how it, it, it reaches them. It needs to be through normal things, you know, like through regular Telegram channels, through um, TikTok, if they had it, through uh, YouTube, if they had it, <laughs> you know, just through organic things where it is, uh, mm -hmm. it's natural, it's not forced on them. You know, it's something it they can find. shaped and crafted in a way that it's uh, meme spreadable, right? So it's, yes. it's like, it's shareable. I want to yeah. share it. Particularly that, yeah, if you, um, it's, it's hard to figure out what is going to be viral. Otherwise, you know, if we knew how to do that, there'd be a lot more viral stuff from people like us, but, you know, that's really what you're looking for is you want, um, if you can sort of infiltrate it into existing telegram networks, for example, they will start sharing it, right? Oh, that's, will, that's, that's not, that's, that's not automatic because currently they have these uh, harsh regulations on spreading oh, true right. information. Yeah, that you're, they you're say war. Yeah. Like yeah. calling the special no. military operation war is like a 15 year jail sentence. Right. Yeah. Sorry to jump in. Uh, I wanted to make sure we have enough time to cover uh, one more thing, and that would be because um, you're special specialized in OPSEC, right? And uh, uh, I guess we would want to know, like, what would be your recommendations? Because there are volunteers who risk their lives. There are um, also, um, you know, people who like actually in the army fighting, but there are also people who are just. Uh, located on the occupied territories who you know have previously supported ukraine they have i don't know books at home materials things on their phone um and uh, we actually discussed this with alex before like how do you it's kind of hard to it's easy to come up with recommendations but it's hard to condense them into something that's practical and has the most impact because you can't you know put all the knowledge about like OPSEC and security to someone who used to make bread and now is on the <laughs> occupied territory so like what's your take on this so um uh like i've been writing a thing about how to how to have a secure phone and i mean that in terms of the how to make sure that your phone is safe to carry around in occupied territory not you know like Facebook won't be able to track me because I've put on my privacy protections. Like, mm -hmm. fuck that. That's unimportant. Um, so basically the, the primary thing to have in mind to think about is that as soon as you put your phone down, like as soon as you stop using it, think that someone's going to pick it up and look through it to find evidence against you. That at, at the instant that you stop using it, it should be ready for someone who doesn't like you to try and find bad things on it. Right. You don't want to have um, you don't want to have it so that your phone is, you know, you prepare it for when you're going to do something um, where you might encounter someone who's going to examine it. You don't want to sort of get ready for it because things happen at unexpected times and you will not be able to, you know, delete pictures just before you get pulled over. You know, you want to be ready for it before it happens. So, um, you know, in terms of you know having books or something at home. Um, you don't, 
you know, if, if that is a threat, then you don't want them there. And the way to get around that tends to be things like put them in plastic bags and bury them and, you know, you can come back and get them later or uh, put them in a communal place so that, um, you know, they cannot be linked to you specifically. You know, um, this was uh, this was one of the things that happened during World War II when there is a, a radio operator based in France. Uh, he was working for the British. And um, what he did was he was in a um, he was renting a room in like a sort of a shared guest house thing where there's, you know, like each each person had their own room and there's a lady who ran the place. Um, he took all of his code books and uh, his other stuff and he found a hiding place in the kitchen and everything that um, he couldn't leave behind in you know, his, his operating location that he had to take with him, he kept hidden in the kitchen. So it wouldn't be in his room and it wouldn't be on his person. It would be you know, somewhere that he could access it if he needed it, but it wouldn't be his. So that's something to consider. Um, in, terms of the, uh, in terms of keeping a phone safe, um, I would say like, the things that you mostly want to be concerned about are um, messages, like message programs with Telegram or Signal or messages or whatever you're using, and uh, photos and videos. Like it, it seems to me like those are the sort of, if someone is looking through your phone to see if you're doing uh, subversive activities, they're going to look at like, are you taking pictures of military uh, installations and, and whatever, um, that would be bad. And are you talking to people about things that you shouldn't be talking to them about? You know, those are the sort of, that is, I assume, what's going to trigger problems. So mm -hmm. as a user, like someone who needs security, um, delete the photos after you've used them. Like, I, I assume that you take the photo, you upload it somewhere so that it can be used by the SBU, delete it. You don't need it anymore. It's, it's just contraband that's going to be problematic for you. Um, you know, if you, same, same with videos. Uh, when you are using a chat program, uh, if you're using Telegram, use secret chats and turn on disappearing messages. Um, because the, the value of disappearing messages is you don't have to remember to delete them. They delete themselves. Everything else, remember to delete it. Again, it's that as soon as you stop using it, it's going to be inspected. So if you are chatting with someone and you talk about what you need to talk about, once you have exchanged information and that's done, delete all of that. Um, make it so that your phone looks like it's not being used for what you're using it for, just mm -hmm. by deleting things as soon as you're done with them. Um, but isn't, is, we can easily add the uh, delete the call history here, right? But won't it be uh, suggestive no. for the person uh, no, no. expecting so, the phone that you are hiding yeah. something? So this is the thing is like, um, you don't want to delete everything, mm -hmm. right? You want okay. to, it's, um, it's a Just little delete, bit. Delete the SBU bot. Rename the SBU chat app to, you know. <laughs> to something else, yeah. <laughs> something else, you know. Mother Pro Russia. Russia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, like so you, you don't want your phone to look blank because that is suspicious. And you don't yeah, want it yeah. to have anything dirty on it. So what you, you're trying to do is you're trying to have a device that is used Looks normal. and lived in, but yeah, like it, it used and lived in, but not dirty. Um, another thing you could think of um, is 
downloading porn and putting pornography into your pictures. Like you've got 19 year old guys looking through your phone. They want to find pictures of tanks. <laughs> they, find pictures of boobs, they might stop looking for tanks. You know, like they've, they've got something else that's more interesting. Um, that's why they call you a specialist in deception. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I, know, I know a few guys who will like this advice very much. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, honey, you don't understand. <laughs> it's all for AppSec. <laughs> this guy told me to do yeah. so. He knows his yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, um, that's, that's sort of like one of the things that you can think about is if, if you're going to be really, if you're going to look worried that someone's looking through your phone, which is very, very likely, um, and it's appropriate, it helps if you've got something they can find that you should be embarrassed about, but not that you would be in trouble over, right? So I'm embarrassed that I have, you know, nude pics on my phone. Oh, no, they found it. This is so bad. You know, that's it's the sort a concept of thing that... so great. I will write it down because <laughs> take a note. Yeah, so many yeah. ideas. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it, it sort of it, it exploits one of these things about um, the way that people uh, operate when they're searching, particularly if they're not trained to do it. So when you search, um, you stop when you find something, right? Like if, if your job as a customs inspector is to look through someone's luggage for illegal things, and you find a bottle of whiskey that has to be taxed. You've done your job, right? You found the whiskey, they pay the tax. Next, you know, you're done. Uh, similarly here, like someone has to look through your phone and find, you know, evidence of contraband. They find something else that's distracting. They're done, right? It, you know, remembering their actual task and going back to it is a little bit more difficult now because they've already achieved something. They've already sort of finished the task that they set out to do. So. It can that's like a, that's a trick so old you know from the auditor's yeah. life i remember that an external auditor comes on site of some of these big four guys that have very little time for so much work and you're like handling this stuff internally uh after some time you understand how they operate and this is very easy they need to come off site with some findings you give them three that are already in the world that this is work in progress we will fix them like in a week or two they are grateful to you because they already have three of the five right and then they are they are lax they they do not search so vigilantly and uh yeah they will find something but not 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 that bad something that you want to want, want them not to find and they go away and everyone is happy they are happy with the report and everyone else is happy with the report because effectively there are two low risk findings <laughs> There you go. So far. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. uh, mm, one, I one good question. I had a question. This one is a priority, right? How do you think? Okay, why do don't, it. why don't they bomb IT infrastructure and or cybersecurity centers, uh, and big IT companies in Ukraine? Mm, um, are there any? <laughs> they do bomb TV towers, but uh, it is nonsense yeah. nowadays while preventing IT from normal operation uh, or even showing that it is a threat to working with Ukraine in this sphere seems to be a logical step. So like showing to the world that Ukraine is not a good business partner in technology, if I understand um, correctly. Yeah, I, I think 
uh, one one thing to keep in mind is that cyber is militarily it's not a priority right now. Uh, they have a lot of problems that have nothing to do with cyber. You know, like they can't cross a river. Um, they you know they're losing territory. Like there are important things militarily that have nothing to do with computers, and so I don't think uh, they're going to sort of task computer related things very highly. Uh, out of all of the assets that they have, they're not going to assign them to something that's not really relevant. Uh, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, similarly, I I don't know if they, you know, like they're, they're they at this point they should be out of smart bombs. So I'm not sure that they could hit a specific IT company if there is, they know what they are. At this point, there is nothing to hit because thanks to even before the war, thanks to COVID. No one worked in the big offices yeah. with many people. There is no people. such like thing was... as a place right. to hit. <laughs> yeah, it's distributed. How you, how so, work? yeah, how do you hit the office when everyone's working from home, right? So, yeah, I think that. Well, uh, they bump homes, but we will miss our coffee maker. <laughs> On the homes, right? Yeah. <laughs> we will I, miss our coffee that... maker that we left in the office. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't know why they're not doing it. Um, it's probably good that they haven't thought to do um, more sort of signaling of that sort, where they they go after civilians as a mm -hmm. direct show, like don't don't help them, otherwise this will happen to you, um, because that's just more war crimes. As, as you say on uh, your glasshouse sessions, these uh, conversations must go on for no longer than an hour because after that they, they degrade. Uh, but I have one last question. Of all sure. the things that you observed during last more than three months, right? Uh, since, since the conception of cyber war changed historically, right? What surprised you the most? Like what was so, the revelation yeah. for you personally with all your background so, and experience? Right. So I, I think um, I was surprised by the, I, I was surprised by how it looked because I was expecting more. I wasn't expecting lights out, but I was expecting, you know, ransomware against Europe or against the US. I was expecting um, sort of more uh, long-term things like you know attacking uh logistics infrastructure to make gas prices go up which is you know that's a thing that they could do um beforehand now i think it's going to be not very easy um but you know they're, they're, like things that they could have done to dissuade people from helping ukraine they could have done that you know in the first three days essentially and they didn't now, if, you know, if they make gas prices go up, people are not going to think, yeah, you know, gas prices are going up because we support Ukraine. They're going to think gas prices are going up because Russia is attacking us. We should attack Russia. Right? It's not going to be, um, it's not going to have the same effect. Um, so they didn't do that. I found that weird. Uh, they didn't use ransomware. I found that weird. Um, the attacks that they did do, I find marginally interesting, but very, very boring. It's, you know, if, if you went to a 60 year old general and you said, come up with cyber operations for your strategic plan, these are the ones that he would come up with. They're not exciting, bold, you know, like really changing people's understanding. It's literally like, um, okay, like wipe out the computer that's used to control the air defense system. You know, it's very 
it's very straightforward. So I found that boring, um, but in a way it's reassuring because it's sort of cyber war uh, in this case has turned out to be like more of the same, like what we're used to, but like it goes to 11. It's just a, a, more of what they normally do. And that makes a lot of sense. The other thing I found surprising is the response in the, um, the academic world, like the scholars who have spent you know, years and years in writing, you know, like cyber war is going to be turning out the lights. It's going to be, you know, uh, destroying the ATM machines, the phone networks, all the stuff. And then when it didn't happen, uh, first they went completely silent for, they also had a strategic lull, you know, like they, they shut down just like Russia. They, they didn't know what to do because they had a vision of how things were supposed to go. That didn't happen. They sort of stopped. They were like, now what? Then, um, there was this backlash where it said, okay, well, because we didn't see the lights going out um, and lights going out as cyber war, there isn't a cyber war. Like there's been no <laughs> cyber. And like, so, you know, that was um, one reaction. And then uh, they went to, okay, well, cyber is not useful. Like clearly if it was useful, the Russians would have done it. They didn't do it. Therefore it's not useful. Um, and then uh, now they're going to, well, what we're seeing isn't actual cyber war. It's, it's just, you know, cyber operations in support of the military during a war, you know, and the, the sort of like um, this like mental ability to not accept reality because it doesn't conform with what you want. Like it's turned out to be a lot more stubborn than I would have expected. Um, you know, to, to me, it makes sense that they're doing something that, you know, fits within their doctrine, fits with what they're used to. It's, you know, things they've done before, they're just doing more of it, et cetera. Um, that they didn't do something that doesn't make strategic sense. That makes sense to me, you know, like why would they turn out the lights when they're trying to get the people to like them? You know, why would they cause uh, banks to lose money when they're expecting to take control of the banks and keep that money? You know, like these are, like to me, these things make sense because I'm thinking about it from a strategic context, but apparently that's not very common. Like, again, like these are, the, I'm, I'm surprised that people who have spent decades um, researching this could be so wrong and then say, you know, it's not me that's wrong, it's the Russians or like it, it's cyber, like to, to decide that, you know, externally there's problems. I guess I, yeah. Uh, I'm a, a bit surprised as well by like the cyber army thing. Um, not in that it happened, but the response to it, right? So we have spent years, 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 years telling Russia, like you cannot have civilians attacking other people and just let them do it from your territory. Like ransomware operating in your territory is against all norms of cyber. It's not how we're supposed to do cyber operations. It's not how things are supposed to work. You know, there are rules. You have to follow the rules. And then like, day one of you know uh, Ukraine being attacked and the cyber army shows up, literally no one has said, okay, look, you cannot have an IT cyber army operating from out of your territory. Like, I know you support Ukraine, but you're not allowed to do operations. Uh, we will arrest you and prosecute you if you do. Like that hasn't happened. And I think people haven't really thought through the, the long-term ramifications of what that means for cyber norms. Like you can't it's going to be a lot harder to be against ransomware if you have allowed like a cyber army to exist you know like that you can you can show that there's a difference but the difference is 
not very big. You can sort of like, well, they're not trying to make money. You know, yes, they're causing damage, but that's not the, the reason. You know, like it's like they've got this higher purpose, so it's okay. Whereas, you know, ransomware doesn't have a higher purpose, so it's not okay. It's, I don't think that that's going to be an easy sell in future. So, yeah, I think I, we um, don't we don't want to get into this part of the conversation because we <laughs> will have to spend <laughs> a couple of hours on it. But CCD Tsoi or this NATO center in Estonia, they they issued the paper with this legal analysis of what's going on. And that there is actually a big difference between cyber criminal activity and uh, like people's uprising against the against the invading yeah. enemy. You know. Yeah. If, they, if, they they're, they're like this. if the people's uprising uprising is on your side, it's very easy to see the difference. <laughs> <laughs> I understand my bias here, so yeah, we yeah. will not go into that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's um, like I haven't read that paper, but as I said, like it's easy to find a distinction if you you know you look for like this little uh, you can you can gerrymander it into like um similarly like if you hack a company and steal their ip to help your um nation that is bad but if you hack a company and steal their ip just to see what they're doing that's okay like that sort of distinction like you can make that and it makes sense but it's it's a little weird you know like it's it's you, you start having to like make these exceptions and like yeah it's, but it's like, not, it's that's not, not what easy. i meant it's not yeah easy. yeah there, there is a lot of work ahead trying well, to one problem solving one problem this. solving one problem at a time will you know win Create first and then and then focus on this <laughs> uh resolving this i guess okay so yeah alex what did you have to say uh, yeah, so one thing I did like is this comment about uh, academic researchers, right? And I think this is one topic we can discuss maybe later with some uh, new, uh, other guests, right? So this is a very good point. Uh, one thing I just like wanted to, you know, like uh, wrap up on a general topic, right? So all these surprises that we found, like, does it change your predictions for, you know, cybersecurity landscape in 10, 20 years? Uh, yeah, not, not really. I think the... Um... The only thing that does change it is if, like, there's, there could be a lot of fallout from the way that the cyber army stuff is happening, right? So there's one possibility, which is, you know, like these hundreds of thousands of people show up to help, they get trained to, to hack and become effective hackers, and then the war is over, and now what do they do? Because they know how to hack, and you get hundreds of thousands of new hackers. I'm not really worried about that because like I am. People, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm not worried about that because the people that they're getting are not being trained to be hackers. They're, you know, they're, they're doing simple, uninteresting things, but there will be a large number of people who are, you know, now used to being able to hack and do what they like, who don't have a, you know, a forum for that or a space to do it anymore. And you're going to think, well, why not? you know, do it somewhere else. So I think that could be, um, that could be very interesting in a, uh, <laughs> a way. Cool. L least uh, to well, say. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, I mean, that's, that's very mild way to put it. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> but do, yeah, do well, you, do you expect any like budget justifications, you know, because states, 
sponsored cyber is not so so scary and terrible and uh, the wolf is not really there but there is this multi-billion dollar industry that presumes that it is there and it's scary and it's coming for everyone you yeah know? i I think um, I think we're seeing messaging around that already. Um, you know, as I said, like the, the, the academics, are, they're sort of this isn't really cyber war. You know, like the real one is much worse. It, it's that is the war, like real cyber wars okay, where the we'll lights go us. out they and the ATM. You know, so I, I think that they're um, and it's true because uh, not that that's the real cyber war, but the thing is like when you do cyber for whatever reason, that is context dependent and strategic dependent, whatever. So yeah, there will be cases where making the lights go out and taking out the ATM network is part of your strategic planning. It's not gonna be every time and it's not gonna be everywhere, but there will be cases where that's true. So saying that that doesn't happen um, is as useful as saying it does. You know, it, It's not worth thinking about these things as isolated attacks that could just happen. It, it, you have to think about like within the context of a strategy. And I think that that is a difficult sell. So we're gonna go back to like, this is not the real cyber war. Like if it was a real cyber war, it would look like we told you it's going to look. So we have to be ready for that. This is my, this is my guess. Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. I think we're at times so we want to be, uh, you know, respectful of your time as well. Uh, but this has been incredibly uh, interesting, I think. Uh, I hope we'll get a, another chance to cover things in more detail sometime after the win. Uh, but in the meantime, we're very, very thankful for you uh, finding the time to speak with us. And uh, I think uh, last thing that we just want to remind uh, people to, um, to support Ukraine and to donate to the links that we posted in the chats. And we'll also post uh, after, uh, after we publish the recording. And with that, um, is there anything you want to say to uh, Ukrainian audience before we wrap it up? Oh, well, glory to Ukraine. <laughs> Slava Ukraini. Glory right. to the heroes. <laughs> Slava Ukraini. Thanks everyone Thank for being with us today. Thanks, Grok for joining yeah. us. This was inspiring and uh, very yeah. thought-provoking. Thank you very much. It's been good. Thanks. Right. Thanks so much and yeah. take care.